Welcome to Let's Talk FCA, presented by Crowell Mooring. We're your co-hosts, Mona Lombardo and Jason Crawford, bringing you the latest developments with the False Claims Act. On today's episode, we're going to look back at some of the top FCA decisions and developments of 2019. Jason, can you kick us off with a discussion of the recovery statistics from 2019? Thanks, Mona. On January 9th, the DOJ announced that the government had recovered more than $3 billion in settlements and judgments in fiscal year 2019. This was up slightly from the prior year in which $2.8 billion was recovered. And of the 2019 total, $2.1 billion came from KETAM cases, with whistleblowers receiving a little more than $265 million in relator share awards. Not only was the government's total recovery higher than the year before, but the number of new case filings also increased from 767 actions in fiscal year 18 to 782 new cases filed in FY19, which included 636 new KETAM matters and 146 affirmative civil enforcement actions. Once again, healthcare-related settlements and judgments, which totaled $2.6 billion, made up the majority of the 2019 recoveries. But it was also a big year for grant-related recoveries, including a $112 million settlement by Duke University to resolve allegations stemming from research grants. Defense recoveries were also up in 2019, including a $34 million payment by an aluminum manufacturer to settle allegations that the company delivered aluminum extrusions that did not comply with contract specs. And since the creation of the Procurement Collusion Strike Force in November 2019, there's been a renewed focus on issues of bid rigging in federal procurement. The potential overlap between antitrust and FCA issues was actually foreshadowed earlier in the year when two South Korean-based companies agreed to pay over $50 million to settle civil antitrust and FCA claims in connection with an alleged bid rigging scheme involving the delivery of fuel to U.S. bases in South Korea. Thanks, Jason. Those recoveries made headlines in 2019, and they're examples of cases proceeding through resolution. But the past year was also notable because of the number of cases that ended early in the litigation due to the government's filing of a motion to dismiss. So there's been a steady increase in filings under 31 U.S.C. Section 3730C2A since the release of the so-called Granston Memo in January 2018. And the number of new motions to dismiss continued apace in 2019 with the total number of filings now approaching 50. Overwhelmingly, these motions have resulted in dismissals. In fact, in one day alone in November, there were three separate motions granted. There have, however, been a few exceptions to this rule. So earlier this year in the UCB case, the United States District Court for the Southern District of Illinois denied the Department of Justice's motion to dismiss after applying the Ninth Circuit's rational relations standard from the Sequoia Orange decision, which requires that the government establish a valid purpose and a rational relation between dismissal and accomplishment of the purpose. So after holding an evidentiary hearing, the court in UCB determined that the record did not support a rational relationship between the government's identified cost and policy considerations and the dismissal of the action. That ruling has since been appealed to the Seventh Circuit, and depending on the outcome of that case and a pending appeal of another denial of a Section 3730C2A motion that is currently on appeal before the Ninth Circuit, 
it may be only a matter of time before the Supreme Court weighs in on the parameters of the government's dismissal authority. Speaking of the Supreme Court, in May, the justices addressed a circuit split on the FCA's statute of limitations. In Cochise Consultancy versus U.S. Exrell Hunt, the Supreme Court held in a unanimous decision that QTAM relators can invoke the three-year tolling provision at Section 3731b2 in cases where the government declines intervention. Under the False Claims Act, cases must be brought either within six years of the alleged violation or three years after material facts are known or reasonably should have been known by the official of the United States charged with responsibility to act in the circumstances up to a maximum of 10 years after the violation occurred. Prior to the Supreme Court's ruling in Hunt, there was a split among the circuits as to whether relators could take advantage of the three-year provision at Section 3731b2 in cases where the government declined intervention. But in Hunt, the court relied on an interpretation of the plain text of the statute and found that the three-year limitations period was applicable even in cases where the government declined to intervene. This decision is notable in that it'll allow relators to take advantage of 3731b2 and decline cases so long as their action is brought within the statute's overall 10-year limitations period. 2019 also saw the formalization of the cooperation credit policy first previewed by DOJ leadership in 2019. The guidelines have since been added to Section 4-4.112 of the Justice Manual and set forth actions that companies can take to earn cooperation credit in ongoing FCA investigations, with voluntary disclosure being the most significant form of cooperation. Beyond that, the guidelines include a list of examples of steps that parties can take to earn credit, such as identifying individuals responsible for the misconduct, providing facts relevant to potential wrongdoing by third parties, and assisting in the calculation of losses to the government. The guidelines don't actually prescribe the specific amounts of cooperation credit that companies can receive, but instead they provide DOJ attorneys with discretion to reduce the damages multiplier and the penalties to be assessed. And perhaps most importantly, the guidelines underscore the importance of compliance programs, stating that the strength of a company's compliance program can be considered when evaluating potential cooperation credit. So in other words, companies should invest in compliance programs not only to prevent potential violations from occurring in the first place, but also where issues arise and mistakes occur, the existence of a robust compliance program can also help reduce the potential penalties and the damages exposure under the FCA. Thanks, Mona. Well, that's all for this episode on the top developments of 2019. Before we close, I wanted to let our listening audience know that this will be my last time on the podcast because I'm going to be leaving the firm to take a position in the government to pursue a long-standing interest in public service. Even though I will no longer have the honor of being Mona's co-host, I look forward to being an avid listener and following important developments in this important area of the law. And I, of course, want to take a moment to thank Jason for his incredible efforts and the time that he has put into this podcast. It's certainly been quite a pleasure and a tremendous pleasure to work with him, and we are all sad to see him go. Of course, Jason is also leaving us with another golden nugget, a recent article that he co-authored on FCA developments of 2019, published in The Government Contractor. So please feel free to check that before we 
bid Jason farewell. And if listeners have any other follow-up questions on these topics, please feel free to reach out to me at 213-443-5563. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Let's Talk FCA. Let's Talk FCA is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash letstalkfca. FCA.